Hello, my name is Anthony, and this is my podcast, Theologizing Life, where we will talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Well, hello. Welcome to Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. And uh, we talk about sort of the topics that also shape how we think about God. And uh, Matt's joining me, Matt Tracy, the one and only. Hi, Matt. Hello. How's it going? It's good. Matt, you are officially, uh, you, you've started teaching at, yeah. uh, are we allowed to say, do we want to keep the college anonymous or do we want to say the name? Why, why would we keep it anonymous? I don't know. Just be vague. <laughs> Matt's teaching at a local college or in case I, in case I say something heretical and they like track me down, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm teaching at Grace College. So in the beautiful Winona Lake, Indiana, Winona Lake, Indiana. So, yeah. Yeah. How's that been going? You've been, been you've had a couple so, of weeks. Yeah. It's been so much fun. I really like, I feel like it's more kind of in my wheelhouse. I was a youth pastor for four years and that was great, but I think it caters more to my Bible nerd sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. The so, inner the, the inner nerd has been unleashed. Yeah. Like you can only get so nerdy with teenagers before they just totally check out on you. But yeah. <laughs> college yeah. students, they're paying to be there and they're writing down what I say. And it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Does that feel good? Does that feel good? Like looking out at a room and there are people taking notes yeah. of what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. It's a little bit like you know, stroking my ego a little bit. So I have to keep an eye on that, but you know. Yeah, gotta stay humble. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, hey, before we jump into our topic today, we have this little just bit we, we wanna do where there's a lot of bad news or at the very least discouraging news or um, anger inciting news. But every now and then there's weird news out there. So uh, we're gonna talk about some weird news that we've come across and and for this episode, Matt, Matt's going to share, Matt, what's the weird news, the, the unusual news you've come across? So this is from September 9th. So it might be a little late to hop on the, the bandwagon here, but I, I found this, this study that's being done <clears throat> by a company. They're not named actually. Yeah. It's a financial uh, website and it kind of goes along with what we're talking about. It also goes along with, you know, spooky season. Halloween time. So they are seeking a candidate to make $1,300 by watching 13 horror movies. And I guess they're doing a study where the person who's watching these movies wears a Fitbit and they kind of track their heart rate while they're watching the movies. And I guess the goal of this study is to see the difference between low budget horror films and higher budget horror films and like how they affect affect people and whether or not the budget of the film makes a difference and so some of the films that they have listed here are you know a quiet place and a quiet place too which i I guess are probably the lower budget ones insidious uh, which is higher budget blair witch project but which is not even remotely scary but also a low budget film Uh, get out the purge paranormal activity which I think the first paranormal activity with a budget was like $50,000 is super low. And the 2018 remake of Halloween. So, yeah. So you get $1,300 for watching all of those plus a free Fitbit 
and a $50 gift card to cover the cost of movie rentals. <laughs> so if anyone out there is interested, that sounds like a exhausting endeavor in my opinion, but you know, it might be, might be right for someone if they they're into that kind of thing. I'm definitely not. So dude, like some of those trailers of some of those movies, I like get out in particular. I'm, yeah. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Uh-uh. Yeah. I heard they're that so- was an excellent movie though. I did too. I heard it was really well done, really good, you know, really good themes and stuff. But I actually seen, I've actually seen a couple of these. I've seen Blair Witch and I've seen a quiet, the first Quiet Place. Quiet Place is a great movie. Have you seen that one? No. It's not necessarily like a horror movie, it's more like a sci fi, like thriller kind of thing. But yeah, definitely gets the pulse pounding a little bit. But I mean, I did the math. It's, a hundred dollars a movie, which I really don't think that that's even worth it because, you know, if it's a two hour movie, 13 movies, that's like a full day of movie watching. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Do they have to watch them back like consecutively or so. can they watch it on their own time? I don't think they have to watch them consecutively, but that's still like that's so many movies. Yeah. I guess in our binge watching culture, like you can watch an entire episode of a, like an entire season of a show in like a day and maybe yeah. it wouldn't be out of the realm possibility for some person, but man, that's a lot. Be, <laughs> and it's not even yeah. a lot of money, like 1300 bucks. Like I could, I take that, but you know, that's not a lot of money. It's a hundred bucks a movie, two hours a movie. It's $50 an hour. You know? I mean, if it was a genre of movie <laughs> I was interested in, I would, I would definitely take it, but yeah, not, not to watch. I just, I don't particularly like horror movies. Neither do I. Not a fan. Well, $1,300 to watch 13 horror movies. So yeah. um, look it up. Like Matt said, it's probably too late to hop in on that. But uh, actually, no, act- applications are being accepted through September 26th. So actually, yeah, it'll be by the time this episode airs, it will be much too late. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. true. We're, we're recording this before uh, before October. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, as we've kind of indicated uh, this is October's episode, and so we're talking about um, supernatural, supernatural realities, uh, things like angels and demons and spirits and uh, spooky things, things that could be spooky. So, so yeah, we'll just uh, can we dive right in with some of my my questions? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, or actually, uh, do you do you want to give us a? I'm putting this on you because you're a professor. <laughs> Um, Professor Matt, do you want to give us like maybe just a big picture, uh, sort of biblical theology overview of what are, what are some of the things that the scriptures teach about, um, supernatural realities? Well, I, I was especially curious about kind of the old Testament understanding of this topic, you know, in the new Testament, we see obviously like Jesus kind of engaging in spiritual warfare, especially in Mark that it happens a lot Mm -hmm. where he's driving out demons and demons are fleeing in the name of Jesus. And he, he, he gives authority to his disciples to drive out spirits in his name as well. And in the old Testament, you kind of get a little bit more of a, an occult focus rather than just mm-hmm. demons. It, it talks about witchcraft quite a bit. And specifically in the context of the pagan nations practicing witchcraft and drawing upon spiritual power for evil purposes so it's interesting like the bible is very clear that like this stuff is real 
And I think yeah. as simple as it sounds, that's really important to understand, you know, off right off the bat. And so I think the, the most important thing that we can understand from scripture as Christians is that Satan is real, demons are real, and even like occult practices, witchcraft, pagan worship, like it has real power and not in a good way. So yeah, I, I was looking up some passages from the Old Testament. First Samuel 28, that's a, a pretty you know famous one where Saul gets a sorceress to kind of conjure up the spirit of Samuel because the Philistines are invading and, and Saul is like, I don't know what to do. God's not answering my prayers. And so I'm going to call on Samuel and it works. Like he gets this witch to conjure up Samuel's spirit. And he just like talks to Samuel, like the dead spirit of Samuel and it, it works. And it's just like a creepy, like weird out of the blue passage almost. But then, uh, you know, before that, in Exodus, there's that story of Moses and Aaron. They're confronting. Hold on, hold on. I want to, I want to read part of this because yeah. it is such this bizarre passage in the Old Testament, and it's one of those things that I, I'm not sure everyone's heard of. And so they know we're not making this up. It's okay. in First Samuel 28, but I love this. Part. I'm going to read this specific part because I think it's kind of funny. Um, so in First Samuel 28, uh, verse 12, it says, uh, "Finally, the woman said, Well, whose spirit do you want me to call up?'" Because they were kind of arguing because Samuel or because Saul had sort of um, outlawed witchcraft in the kingdom. And she's like, are you trying to trick me? You know, basically, you could tell on me. And he's like, no, I'm not trying to trick you. I won't, you know, I won't tell on you, basically. Won't turn you in. So she's like, okay, who do you want me to call up? And he says, call up Samuel. So when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, you've deceived me. You are Saul. And don't be afraid, the king, Saul, told her, what do you see? I see a God, lowercase g, coming up out of the earth, she said. What does he look like? Saul asked. He is an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel, and he fell to the ground before him. I love this. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? (laughs) Why are you bothering me? Yeah, so he was like, my work here is done, Saul. Like, get off my back. (laughs) Deal with me alone. It's so funny. I was doing yeah. just fine. <laughs> and Saul's response is, because I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> the Philistines uh, are at war with me and God has left me and won't reply to prophets or dreams. So I've called for you. To, God's left you because of these kinds of things, you idiot. But yeah, um, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. You should check it out. It doesn't reflect well on Saul as a person. He's so, just kind of. He's like, I'm just going to grasp at straws here and try and talk to a ghost because God's not answering me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's just an example of like the Bible just assumes that these things are real and that readers of the Bible understand that. Like in in Exodus, like I was saying before, like Moses and Aaron are confronting these magicians from Egypt and they're able to conjure snakes. And Exodus 7, it just says they, they use their secret arts quote unquote, to do that. Mm. It doesn't really say what. And, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 2, he talks about sorcerers and magicians interpreting his dreams. Isaiah 47 is a really interesting passage for anyone curious about like the biblical view of the occult. Because he kind of, Isaiah just mockingly calls out these magicians and sorcerers in Babylon. And he's kind of saying like, even these spells and incantations, whatever power they may have, they can't save you from God's judgment. And so 
in all of these cases, the Bible is not denying that occultism or witchcraft or pagan rituals are real or that they work. It's pretty clear uh, that they do, but the Bible is pretty definitively clear that any supernatural power apart from God is a thing of evil and it's used against God and his people. So, you know, drawing on spiritual power that is not the power of God is inherently bad. And it's also inferior. Like it's, it does not hold a candle to the true power that we receive through faith. So that's yeah. kind of the, the Old Testament overview of, you know, this topic. And in the New Testament, it kind of develops it a little further, like with the power of Christ, like in Jesus, we are pretty untouchable, you know, by, by his power. So, yeah, I want to, I want to just sort of affirm and highlight, I guess, some key, key thoughts um, of what you said. I love, um, there's a book I'm going to recommend again by John Mark Comer. I think in our last one, I recommended one by him, but this one's uh, God has a name. And uh, in one, one chapter, he's talking about uh, Yahweh, God's name, and how it distinguished him from the other gods of the ancient Near East and um, their sort of context. And he says, uh, he's talking about how at the beginning of the Bible, he says, uh, there's a snake in the garden. In the ancient Near East, the snake was a well-known symbol for chaos and evil. How did the snake get into Eden? It's unclear. What is clear is that we live in a spiritually dense world jammed with both human and non-human beings beyond measure. It's also clear that these spiritual beings, just like humans, have a measure of free will and autonomy. They can obey and serve Yahweh, or they can rebel and war against him, just like us. And so scripture just sort of takes for granted that there are, even the Old Testament, that there are spiritual realities at play in this world we inhabit. Uh, and some of them serve Yahweh. Some of them are messengers. Uh, the Old Testament, you sort of highlighted the occult um, instances in the Old Testament. There are also places where uh, a messenger from God or a specific angel uh, like Gabriel um, comes with a message. And so there's there's these spiritual beings that serve Yahweh. And then there are very clearly these spiritual beings that are participating in the rebellion against Yahweh. And the New Testament, what I love about the New Testament and Jesus's ministry is because we so often focus on like Jesus and the atonement for sin. And, and that is a absolutely essential, necessary part of what Jesus came to do. But when you look at his ministry, he confronted the kingdom of darkness and he confronted it on every level that it had altered God's good creation. And one of those levels is uh, humans who were oppressed or possessed or inflicted with um, just uh just enslaved by these evil spiritual beings. Like he confronted the powers of darkness. And so, um, yeah. so yeah, scripture takes it for granted uh, that there are spiritual, spiritual beings at play. It's just sort of there. And we sort of do too. Like when we watch a movie, most of the movies and stories we watch just sort of take for granted that there is an evil that exists in this world. And some people seem bent on it. And so most of the movies we watch and stories we tell involve you know, a hero and a villain. Um, it just sort of takes for granted that there are villains in the world. There, there is evil, but it's kind of interesting. It's kind of come to mind when, when you're speaking like in scripture, at least off the top of my head, I can't think of one time where like a human being had to like conjure 
like an angelic warrior like in the old testament like god's people just kind of encounter them like they come mm-hmm. and they appear god kind of takes the initiative like peels back the curtain and says like this is my spiritual warrior who is fighting alongside you and it's just kind of a like taken for granted like yeah god's on our side his forces are fighting on our behalf um and i can't think of a time in scripture where someone's like trying to get an like a divine you know being an angel to come and and help them do something and you get all of these different instances especially in the old testament of you know pagans trying to call on their gods in vain and Mm-hmm. Baal worshippers trying to get Baal to do something, just like begging him, show yourself, manifest yourself. And with God, it's kind of just like, yeah, he's there all the time. And he doesn't, you don't really have to do anything to make him work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting point. Like God is uh, like understood to be on our yeah. side fighting, but it seems there are times where, so we don't necessarily need to conjure God's help. But sometimes um, uh, humans need delivered, like they become prisoners of war in a sense. Um, Yeah, I love, like, as you were talking about that example from, I was looking for, it's in 2 Kings 6. um, And I haven't recently read this whole chapter, so I can't uh, summarize it very well. But there's, um, there's King, says the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And um, Elisha at the time was the, the man of God, a prophet. And um, there was a servant of the man of God, and he got up early the next morning. This is verse 15, went outside. There were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. And he says, oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And that man's probably thinking, no, no there's not. They, <laughs> the Israelite troops were outnumbered. Mm-hmm. And Elisha prayed, though. He says, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Uh, there's like this spiritual army of the Lord. And then the crazy thing, the next thing that happens is, huh? I love that passage. It's so cool. Just yeah. Like, so I would, then somebody Elisha, would just make a movie scene about it. Anyway, keep going. Nuts. Yeah. yeah. Elisha prays that the Aramean army would be blinded. Um, and so they are. And then Elisha leads them. Uh, he says, he says, follow me and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, oh Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. So they were, they went into the Israelite city at the time of, of Samaria and, um, or the, it would have been in Judah, uh, the region of Judah, but and the king of Israel saw them and he shouted to Elisha, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And Elisha says, of course not. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So that's how, that's how the, that's how the battle ended. So they line yeah. up to fight, attack them. They go blind. Elisha just walks them right into the yeah. city and uh, then says, yeah, show them hospitality and then send yeah. them on their way. Completely um, humiliating. Like that's even worse <laughs> than killing them. That's just like so embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Get out of here now. Go home now. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this is this is fun. I wasn't planning on talking about some of these stuff, but they just come to mind as we're talking. A great story. I love that story. The Old Testament. Some people think have a hard time reading Old Testament because there are some parts that, man, it's it's like nails on a chalkboard trying to read, you know, get yeah. through it. But then there are other places where there are stories like this where you're like, "What just happened?" 
But anyways, okay. Well, let's get into some practical questions then. Now that we've established that scripture indicates that these things are real. Um, let's, let's go ahead and just get this one out of the way. Uh, Matt, could you talk a little bit about possession versus a phrase we've come to sort of use in Christianity, oppression, versus there's, I think, temptation as well. So possession, oppression, temptation. Uh, what's the difference? And then do individuals have authority to sort of deliver or resist themselves or do they need others help right i think that's a good distinction temptation oppression possession and it's almost kind of like a you know a progression of influence yeah so temptation is something that we all we all experience like we as christians we know what is good but you know romans 7 paul says we know what's good we just don't do it that's what sin does that's sin's effect on our life but in Romans 8, he talks about how we have the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and the authority to resist giving into temptation. So, you know, we both are from the Wesleyan Church at one point, and, you know, we believe in total sanctification, or at least the Wesleyans do. And, you know, that's kind of what Paul is saying. Like, it is possible to live a sinless life if you have the Holy Spirit. So, like, temptation, it's something that we experience, but we do have overwhelming victory in Christ to resist it. Oppression, I think, is kind of a more spiritual battle where Satan kind of is advancing on us and trying to cause harm, spiritual harm or physical harm or mental harm on us. And and even then in, in James 4, I think it, he talks about us having the authority and the power to even resist those advances, um, stand against the devil, he will flee, that kind of thing. And so, yeah. Scripture kind of talks about how, you know, Satan doesn't really have any opportunity to affect us if we are in Christ. And so even when it comes to oppression, which, you know, is a very real thing. And, you know, you've uh, been part of the Wellsprings ministry, and maybe you can share a little bit about what that might look like. But it's pretty clear in scripture that we have, we have the high ground when it comes to you know, Satan's advances in our life. <clears throat> when it comes to possession, I think when when a demonic force has like a true foothold in someone's life, that's when outside intervention is, you know, definitely necessary. So like scripture has accounts all over the place of demons being driven out of people through the authority of Jesus, you know, Matthew 10, Acts 8, mm-hmm. Acts 18, a bunch of other ones. And it's always at the hand of someone else. It's never the person who's actually harboring the spirit that like delivers themselves. Yeah. And so it's not that it's not that we can like deliver ourselves from full on demonic possession, I think. But we have the power to actually prevent that altogether. If we have, you know, Christ on our side, we have the Holy Spirit. And even when it comes to possession, like, again, Satan is completely helpless against the name of Jesus. And it seems it's, I'm sure it's not easy to exercise a demon from someone, but in scripture, it's pretty, it seems pretty simple. They just say, go away and you know, it goes away. So, but yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's a couple different layers of like, I, I don't think all of it as is as black and white crystal clear as we sometimes would like it. I think some Christians like to think like they're, because they're um, Christians and God and Jesus is on their side. Um, they're completely immune, but clearly 
temptation can be a form of spiritual attack and, and we're not immune to that. And, but the other thing that's interesting is James seems to indicate that we're tempted when we're led away by our own desires. So I think there is a sense in which the uh, sort of demonic influence or uh, influence of the enemy uh, temptation can sort of be this external spiritual attack. Um, but then we can uh, in, begin to either internalize it or allow that influence to. So basically, it's sometimes like the enemy can give us an idea and then we can grasp hold of it and own it, yeah. whether that's temptation, um, an idea about temptation or an idea about lies. I heard a podcast uh, recently and again, John Mark Comer uh, is the, the one who was being interviewed. And he said that one of the main strategies of the enemy is uh, is lies. Um, he deceives in a way that appeals to our disordered desires that are then normalized in our culture. So we buy into a lie that is appealing to a desire that isn't quite maybe transformed by the Holy Spirit. And yeah. then uh, some of those desires, though, in our wider culture have been normalized. Um, so I use um, this just seems like a, a relatable one in general even if people don't talk about it, we're all um, beings with, with sexual desires on some level or not. So there could be a lie about like what will make you happy or what, um, what you need or what you deserve. And that lie appeals to this disordered, maybe sexual desire. And then in our culture, it's sort of normalized to, you know, pursue sexual pleasure um, for yourself in any way you, you want almost. So um, as long as it's consensual. So I, I like that idea of part of how the enemy, I think, can even attack Christians, even exercise influence over Christians is um, through through lies that could either be temp temptation or oppression. Because the other way I think the enemy lies to us is about who we are, um, mm -hmm. that you're not enough, that um, God couldn't possibly forgive you again, and you need to sort of wallow in shame. And um, the danger, though, I think, is sometimes we we will own those lies and it's sort of like the enemy no longer has to spend energy attacking us because we sort of in inside of our own minds perpetuate the lie. It, yeah. It's, it becomes self-perpetuating. Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I guess what I want to say is go ahead. There's a, a kind of a cool idea in Catholicism that it, it kind of talks about, you know, Satan being allowed entrance, like, there's no possession that happens that does or oppression even that, that that happens without permission, like on some level, on a spiritual level, like there is there is a door and a door open in someone's heart and someone's soul that's like allowing this to happen. I kind of think that's what you're talking about. You're like you're yeah. you're allowing that lie, that thought, that temptation to have a foothold on you spiritually. And that kind of gives Satan kind of it's like kind of a chink in the armor, I guess. Yeah. So. And, and I think, I guess what I would say that I want to clarify with what you said is because you kind of talked about how we have in Christ, the power to resist. We have every, you said the high ground, we have the high ground. But what I want to clarify is that doesn't mean we're immune or else scripture wouldn't call us to sort of stand guard. And the most yeah. clear passage for this is the Ephesians six, you know, um, it says, put on all of God's armor, God's armor, so that you may be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil and yeah. later on, it, taught, it describes the armor, but it says, uh, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. And obviously, he's using a metaphorical illustration, but, but the basic premise is that even as believers, he's writing this 
to Jesus followers, we need to be on our guard. There are fiery arrows. There are attacks from the enemy that we, if not on our guard, have the potential to be susceptible to on one level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think full on possession, like we see in some of the gospels where it's like complete madness um, and driven to insanity and uh, just some crazy stories of even superhuman strength and self-harm. I think someone who is in Christ um, possession, I, I do not think, I want to be careful saying, I do not think it can happen because I guess I could be wrong in anything, you know, but I would say, I think it's highly unlikely is maybe what I would yeah. like. Most yeah. Christians would say not possible. I'll just say highly unlikely. <laughs> yeah. I use the word untouchable. And I, I think I kind of, when it comes to possession and I, I kind of, I would stand by that. I think it, it can't happen because yeah, <clears throat> when you give your life to Christ, like Jesus quite literally like takes possession of you as his own. And yeah, I think that just that spiritual reality gives us a power and a strength that like Satan cannot penetrate. Yeah. Yeah. I, could, I agree. I also, um, so we kind of no, have, I think a bit of a differing opinion on that. But. No, I think, I think, um, I think I agree with you. I just wanted to be careful with yeah my language i guess I so i make, like, but overarching statements but the temptation and oppression i think and i think the reason i want to spend some, there's other questions i want to dive into but i want to spend some time here because i think it, if people are listening i think it could be helpful to them to distinguish so i think we have in christ the power and authority to resist uh the enemy i don't like the word deliver because the word deliver by just like it intrinsically means someone outside of yourself needs to set you free. But I think we have in Christ power to fight back and to resist um, the enemy. But I also think we need community. And so I'll share two examples um, of what this looks like. But part of why I think we need community also is sometimes we don't see clearly the lies we've bought into without other people speaking into our lives. Um, like there, there are stories of people who are, who have been so deceived that they actually believe God is because God wants them happy. Like I've heard pastors share, like I've heard of these stories, like people come to them and said, God, it, God is telling me to leave my spouse. Like, no, you know, so I could be happy. Like, no, God's not telling you to do that. Like you have bought in so much to a lie. You can't even see it clearly. So anyways, some examples of, of maybe resisting, um, I want to be clear. I tend to, to maybe lean more on the, the, my brain can easily go down the road of a skeptic. Um, but there was a experience that I can't, um, I can't explain fully very well, but I can't deny. So there was one day I was feeling, um, this was a couple of years ago. I was feeling pretty terrible as a pastor. Like I felt like I sucked. Um, like I wasn't good at anything and was having some real self-loathing lies. And before leaving the office, I read an article. This was a couple of years ago. There was um, a, a pastor who committed suicide and I read the article about it. And there's like a picture of him and his family. Um, and he had, you know, a beautiful wife and two young kids. And it was really relatable because I'm married. I had kids. And um, so he wasn't that much older than me. And that just like exasperated the, sort of downcast mood I was in. And so I went home and I already felt pretty like low, but after reading that, I felt like this heavy, like, like what I would describe it is, is a weighted blanket, but also a thick darkness. Like 
that's that's as descriptive as I can be, I guess, is I just felt this dark heaviness. And I went for a run to sort of clear my head. And while I was on the run, I just uh, started rebuking a spirit of depression, um, a spirit of, uh, I think maybe a spirit of death. Um, and uh, I can't remember another one, but like depression, a spirit of death, I just specifically named. And I know this may sound weird to some people, um, but I just didn't know what to do. And I just, I really can't explain to you how dark, like it was just a really weird, and it, that lifted, it like lifted off of me. I was still back to sort of my baseline, the other lies I was wrestling with. Like I still felt a little down, but that heavy darkness like lifted. So I think we have the power within ourselves to like resist. Um, but then I've also served, like you said, on the Wellsprings team. And, and in that, it in community, people walk through uh, prayerfully um, helping people identify those doors they've maybe opened in their life and the lies they've maybe accepted. Um, and a lot of times it's also connected on forgiveness, like the roots of bitterness that have taken hold. And because of that, the enemy is um, just sort of antagonizing them, even as a believer. And in community, uh, those things are identified and people are prayed and, and walked through surrendering it. And there's that's what, there. that's what Wellsprings is kind of about, right? That's yeah. the ministry that they do. Yeah. It's kind of like yep. a, it's almost like a, a very intense prayer session. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's not exactly. always, it doesn't always deal with a demonic, but sometimes it does. And yeah. that's kind of what we're talking about when we say Wellsprings. Yeah. There have been some really amazing things that have happened through the ministry that we did at our church, the Wellsprings that we have up and running. So yeah. That's kind of probably, uh, maybe I guess share a link um, yeah. when I post this, but Wellsprings of Freedom International is the ministry. And then we, our church was a, like a, a site, a location that had a yeah. team serving there. But yeah. Well, anyways, I guess we can move on to some other exciting questions. Yeah. Uh, can spaces and objects and content like movies, literature, and music be occupied by and or carriers of dark spiritual forces? So we're talking about like haunted dolls, <laughs> haunted houses, and yeah, things like that. Yeah. So I, I again, I kind of turn to the Catholics because uh, mm-hmm. they have a much more developed theology of this than I think Protestants do, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, but they they have some good stuff to to say. I think I was looking on a website and it, it talks about how the the these spiritual forces, these demonic presences, they have the power to manifest in and through specific locations and even objects. So if they can, they can possess a person, like they have the power to manifest in and through things, but they only, the only thing that can be like physically actually possessed, taken over on a spiritual level uh, is, you know, a person and maybe animals in Mark 5, we have this story of Jesus sending a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. Yeah. I'd love to see him explaining that to the farmer of those pigs, like what he did. But, yeah. um, <laughs> because he, you know, sent a legion of demons into this herd of pigs and then they all drowned themselves. So, but anyway, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting off topic. So, so in, at least in, in the Catholic understanding they believe that spiritual forces can and do manifest through locations and objects, but possession happens only to people. But yeah, they connect it to occult practice mostly because, like, when you celebrate and invite spiritual influence, 
you're opening yourself up to all kinds of things that you, I mean, just don't know anything about. Like there are spiritual realities that are at work in the world that like, if you don't know who you're talking to or what you're dealing with, like it's dangerous. I think a Ouija board is the, the best example. Like it's not a possessed object in and of itself. Like I think Ouija boards are owned by like a board game company, like Hasbro or something like they've, they're not that big of a deal, like as they're not in and of themselves an evil object, but when you're using it, like you were inviting and opening yourself up to spiritual influence, you're actually like asking for a spirit to work through you and manifest its power through you. And that's, I, I can't even begin to describe how terrible of an idea that is. <laughs> so, yeah, yep. I, yeah, I completely, I completely agree. I think there's things that we can do that and like they will be obliged to respond to the invitation <laughs> exactly and uh but then yeah i think there is so another interesting thing from the old testament was is in daniel and um daniel's like praying uh and there's this messenger that comes it's a vision he has um and this angel i'm trying to look where the um Again, I haven't read this passage in a while, so I can't summarize it very well, but I'm just going to pick up. Um, there's this messenger that comes uh, to Daniel. It's, I guess it just says a man. He says, Daniel, you are very precious to God, so listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up, and still trembling. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So there's this, again, doesn't scripture doesn't really explain all of the background theology, I guess, of like what exactly is happening here. But it seems there is um, the spirit prince of Persia, this region, um, and again, I've read and I was reading in a book and I've heard people talk about, and I've experienced it too. And maybe other people, there've been times where I've been in places. Um, you, you can almost feel it in cities uh, where areas that are dominated by gang violence or drug abuse or homelessness. And again, this doesn't mean that all the humans that are affected by that are sinful, evil people. It means they need um, they need freedom, they need deliverance, but it's almost like the whole area, the region is under this like dark cloud or, yeah. or um, that there are specific footholds sometimes in certain regions. So yeah, I think localities, locations. Um, yeah. And then I've heard stories, yeah. these are, sorry, go ahead. That was a really common belief in, in the ancient world. Like cities had patron deities yeah. that they prayed to and the, the Bible, it, it just seems like from that passage, especially like it just seems like the Bible just understands that those deities, whether they were like actual, you know, gods, probably, but it, I don't know if it like accepts the existence of other gods, but it definitely accepts the existence of other like forces at work that have a foothold power authority over these regions, entire regions of the world that are certainly not forces on god's side it's just such an interesting again like the bible just seems to accept the fact that these things are real and they actually do have the power to influence us <laughs> so yeah you know yeah. keep going 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I've also heard stories of people who've gone on trips to places and like got a souvenir object, but it turns out it was some sort of like idol. And it seemed like things, um, unexplainable things, like when they brought it in their house, unexplainable things happened or like illness and they got rid of the object and, you know, kind of prayed and over the space and that seemed to take care of it. And I was <clears throat> on a mission trip to Haiti once and like voodoo dolls and stuff are like real. And I, I heard the missionary share some stories there. And um, it's stuff that like to most um, Americans, I think, or most just Western uh, cultures uh, that are just more skeptic of, like we just wouldn't believe. Um, but I also, there's only been a few times, but I have once or twice sort of witnessed um, something that I'm like, my brain wants to be skeptical of what I just saw, but I can't deny that. Um, and it wasn't like Hollywood, but like there was, it was a wellspring session, but there was an individual who we were, we were talking to and their voice changed a little bit, not like a deep growly, like, you know, evil sounding voice, but it, it changed a little bit and their eyes looked sort of glazed over. Like they were looking at us, but it's like, it was, it was weird. I saw visibly and we were speaking with them and then we told that spirit to leave them. And then it's like the person came back and we asked them if they like, do you know what we just, do you know what just happened? You know what just like, they didn't recall the co like a five minute conversation we just had. And I'm like, like I said, the, my brain wanted to say, like make all kinds of rational, like rationalize what just happened. But I'm like, I saw it. I can't. So anyways, um, yeah, I think, I guess what I would say is I think the interplay between the spiritual realm and the physical is kind of mysterious, but there is some overlap. And maybe I guess I would say there are ways we can sort of participate in that overlap. And when we're dealing with dark, evil spiritual forces, there are ways we probably shouldn't participate mm -hmm. in the overlap. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts? No, that's, that's good. I think, I think the, the kind of medium through which these dark forces operate is occultism, which I think people have a very naive curiosity about, even if it means like, you know, <clears throat> when I was in high school, like my friends and I, we would like sneak into a graveyard and try to talk to ghosts. Like, and even now looking back on that, I would, I'm just like, man, that was a stupid thing to do. Just a naive curiosity of like opening yourselves up to things that you don't understand. And it's just so important, I think, to, uh, to, to realize and understand and take to heart the fact that like these things have power, whether or not it's actual like demonic evil power or, or otherwise, like these things are real. And it's something that we can't just mess with and play around with. So, yeah. Um, I agree. So this kind of bleeds into this question. To what degree should Christians stay away from engaging content that contains and portrays dark spiritual realities? And I guess to specify, I know people have different convictions and I'm, I'm not a fan of like imposing personal convictions on people about movies or literature that they should or should not read, or even um, whether putting out Halloween decorations or something like, I don't want to get real um, rigid or specific, but at the same time, I think my, my pastoral heart is to say, like, I think there, there is some, and I want to let you answer, but I think 
Christians, like you just indicated, that naive curiosity, like, yeah, what, what, what should, what, what, what are some maybe principles we should think about when it comes to content that is portraying uh, dark spiritual realities? Yeah, I mean, in Colossians, Colossians three talks about fixing our eyes on things above, not on you know things of this world, and the Bible overwhelmingly talks about how God is a God of life. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of peace. He's a God of joy, a God of kindness. And to fix our eyes on who God is. And when we fix our eyes on who God is, it kind of naturally results in a desire to run from things that God is not. Yeah. So darkness, gore, evil, demons, possession, like occultism, those things are not of God. Those things are, you know, of this world. And I think when we understand, when we have a full developed, clear view of who God is, we will naturally be drawn to him and away from those things. And so it's not that engaging with, you know, Halloween horror movie content. It's going to like actually do necessarily like physical harm. It's not going to make us renounce our faith. It's not going to like, you know, I, I understand these things have power and it has the potential to, but I think in Christ, like we have substantial defense against those things. But I think part of living a life that's transformed by Jesus is celebrating those things that are life-giving and not things that are evil. And so I just think it's good Christian practice to not engage with those things and not celebrate those things and not like, yeah, I, I just think it's important to not I'm not, I'm not like a boycott person. Like, yeah. you know, I, still yeah. stuff I don't agree with, I don't shop there anymore. Like I don't, it's, it's fine. Like I've seen horror movies before and I don't really enjoy them, but I, I just think as a general principle, our eyes should be fixed on who God is, not who God is not. So, yeah. And I love, you just said a little bit ago, things that are life giving. And one of the things that it, let's take Halloween, for example, um, so there's the fun of dressing up in costumes and my son likes dressing up as Batman or Spider-Man or whatever. And I'll be honest, I do too. So, you know, <laughs> but then there's like this inordinate preoccupation with death mm-hmm. and things that are not life-giving. And I think I won't, again, I won't draw a line of rigidity. I just want to say, I think um, when we fix, like you said, when we fix our mind on Jesus, um, we're also fixing on things that are life-giving. Um, God is and and his redemptive purposes are life-giving. Yeah. And then I'll just share personally. So I'll use a a non-controversial example. There are times in my life where um, there's something kind of stressful going on at work and um, I can exasperate, like there've been times where I've drank coffee later in the day and drank a lot of it. And um, I could tell that it's exasperated my anxiety. Um, Or if I drink coffee too late in the day, um, it hinders my ability to have a peaceful sleep at the normal time I go to bed. And so I cut myself off from coffee at a certain point of day because it exasperates something going on in my life. Um, If fear or uh, depression or anxiety are things that people struggle with, music, movies, books, podcasts that contribute to that might not be helping you. Like it, it would maybe be a good idea to not exasperate what's going on in your life. Or one way I've heard it talked about is like entertaining a spirit of fear. So there have been times, there's one time we were on vacation and there's like this, my wife and I were watching, you know, the cable TV and there was a, um, 
uh, sort of a marathon of this crime TV show. And I watched a couple episodes back to back. And it was one of those crime TV shows that's a little bit more um, uh, uh, detailed, I guess, in the in the crimes are always related to murder and things. And um, mm-hmm. I felt terrible after watching a couple episodes. Now, do I think watching crime TV shows is sinful bad? Um, I don't know if I would say that. Uh, was there a point where it wasn't helpful for my like mental state of being like it definitely impacted it you know yeah Um, so and then there's things like gore and again like a preoccupation with death or things that just are meant to just provoke i guess a spirit of fear um or things that almost make light of like demonic spiritual things like almost mock it Mm -hmm. i I would just call I, i guess what i'll say is to maybe I I guess allow the Holy spirit to introduce specific convictions in your life. But I guess I would just caution and prayerfully think about whether that is, as you said, a way to fix our eyes on, on things above on, on Jesus. Yeah. It's not like just knowing yourself and not exacerbating the, the potential footholds that Satan might have in your life to kind of bring it back to uh, what we were talking about before, (laughs) you know, like I'll be frank here. I have a two-year-old daughter and I'm super excited to dress her up for Halloween and, you know, do cute stuff and give her candy. Like I'm going to do that. Not because I, you know, love the occult and I'm participating in some pagan holiday, but because it's a, it's a time for her to be a kid and have fun. And I'm super excited about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say like we were at Walmart the other day and I was walking around with her and there were these like disgusting Halloween masks that were Mm -hmm. on display and I steered her well clear of those because it's like, I don't need your innocent little eyes to to know that stuff exists. Yep. So like, I think, you know, one of the questions I know we were going to talk about was Halloween. Like maybe we can just segue into that. Like, yeah, I don't think Halloween is inherently a bad thing because our American culture has made it something goofy and fun for, you know, kids to go out and, and have a good time. But there's also an element of Halloween that, part of our culture just really loves celebrating these nasty, horrible, like blood and gore monsters and zombies. And like, and, and I don't think that part is very edifying and, you know, I'll, I'll celebrate Halloween with my little girl and I'm not going to teach her. I'm not going to teach her to engage in that kind of thing. Like, you know what I mean? I think there's a healthy balance between having fun because it's just like something our American culture likes to do. And engaging with the like darker spiritual aspect of the holiday. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're going to close with probably one of the harder questions to talk about. This will be our last discussion point. So there's places in um, the gospels where Jesus heals someone of a physical illness or something that sounds like would be probably diagnosed today as a psychological illness. And, And he heals them by actually commanding, spirit to leave the individual um the mark five passage is actually one like so the man uh is demon possessed but um some of the descriptions sound like psychosis uh insanity you know um and then story, I think, like you read that and it's like that's epilepsy like the person has a seizure disorder in there yes um, yeah, yeah actually that's the that's the other place there was someone who uh says he has a seizure but Jesus, to, to address it, he actually commands a spirit to leave him. Right. So 
What, uh, <laughs> I like that I'm the one asking this question and not you. So uh, yeah, what's the overlap and interplay between spiritual realities and physical ailment? I'll use the example of depression. I firmly believe depression is a physical, physical chemical imbalance in the brain, at least in chronic cases. Like your brain doesn't emit or produce the chemicals that it needs to in order to be balanced. And so depression results. It is not a spiritual attack or a demonic possession when you are depressed. And I believe that other mental illnesses like, you know, even schizophrenia or or other illnesses like that, that's a physical chemical imbalance in the brain that can be treated. And, you know, with therapy and medication can be, if not cured, helped, alleviated. And I don't think that Satan has a, like a, a possession of a person if they struggle with mental illness. But I do believe, like we were talking before, that there are footholds that can be made. There are doors that can be opened. So for example, like if I am in a super depressed state of mind and I allow that depressive state of mind to just kind of overwhelm me and I wallow in it and I accept the lies and the thoughts that are kind of invading my mind that are from, you know, Satan. I think there is a spiritual attack that can happen with that physical, you know, weakness. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. so the physical weakness, I think, and I, I'm not calling it weakness as like a pejorative term. It's like, it, it just a, it's a disorder. It's an illness. It's something that is chemically... Uh, unbalanced about the brain, and but it has the potential to be manipulated and taken advantage of uh, by on a spiritual level. So I think that's kind of the connection. And, you know, these people who in scripture or talks about there, you know, in a state of psychosis, it's very possible that that could have been a a physical chemical imbalance in their brain, like they were born with a mental illness. But at some point, it got to the point where Satan was allowed to kind of invade their body, invade their soul and and take over in a very real way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And one of the things I think maybe we don't talk about enough and maybe as a pastor, I should um, maybe try to explore and flesh this out more and talk about it, but like we're embodied souls. And so kind of like um, I'll use, I'll use stress. Uh, you use depression and I will use stress. So, there are times where like um, I am stressing about something because I feel like it all depends on me. Like if I boil down to sort of the root lie that I'm believing is that, well, there's two lies. One, it depends on me and I actually have the control, uh, the sort of the sovereignty to control the outcome. So I'm stressed about what depends on me and stressing about what I have to control, which when you put it in those terms is kind of a spiritual issue. Like I'm not trusting God. I'm not prayerfully um, taking it to God and I'm not acknowledging his role um, in the work he does and in the things that happen behind the scenes that he orchestrates. I'm not really being mindfully aware of that reality. I'm focusing on my control. So that's a spiritual issue. But because of that lie I'm believing, I now have um, this stress issue, which uh, physically manifest sometimes with like digestive issues or um, just like I've had times where I felt like there was like this heaviness in my chest, like this anxiety. So like 
we're embodied souls. And so our spiritual wholeness and our physical wholeness and the interplay between there, it's not totally separated. It, it is connected. And so when the enemy is attacking us on a spiritual level, it's not, I think, out of the question that it affects us physically. And then similarly, when I do healthy things, like when I go for a walk in nature or when I go for a run and endorphins are released in my brain, I have a clearer, um, my head is clearer. And then I'm actually able to go to God in prayer or go to scripture. And I'm, my, I'm, my mind is in a healthier state to be able to receive from God. So I think sometimes we maybe in the church, at least for me, I don't know if I've really given enough thought or credence to the connection between our physical wholeness and our spiritual wholeness. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that there is this interplay and connection because we're embodied souls and our, our hope, our redemptive hope isn't for our little spiritual, our spirits to go off to heaven and live a disembodied reality. The teaching of the scriptures is actually bodily resurrection. Like our hope is the full redemption and wholeness of our bodies. Paul makes that very clear. And is that first Corinthians um, or Romans? Romans, I think he talks about resurrection in both of them, but, um, but yeah, I think there is a connection. Absolutely. And I mean, even in the example of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, like he fasted for 40 days got to a place where he was literally starving and then Satan chose that opportunity to attack him and tempt him. So I think that is a reality that applies to us today. Like you said, you know, when Satan attacks, it can manifest in spiritual oppression. I think the opposite is also true. Like physical ailment, physical weakness can give way to Satan because he knows that he's helpless against Jesus he knows that he has no he has no chance. He knows that the battle's already been won, uh, and so he's going to look for anyone who has you know a chink in their armor uh, and try and attack them in that way. So that's good. Well, Matt, this is a good talk. Yeah. Any any uh, any last words? Any last thoughts? I think I just double down on what we said in the beginning. You know, this is real stuff, and it's not it's not something to be experimented with messed with. Um, and I think our naive curiosity as an American culture who, you know, we've kind of been bred to not acknowledge this stuff is real. <laughs> Whereas in other parts of the world, they do have a very much more like a holistic understanding of reality on the spiritual and physical level. Like as Americans, we don't. And that kind of leads to this naive curiosity that can be potentially dangerous. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'll end with one of my theologian, a quote from one of my favorite theologians, uh, N.T. Wright. He wrote, um, when we humans commit idolatry, which he defines as worshiping that which is not God as if it were, in worship is simply ascribing worth to or giving priority to. I think sometimes we think of idolatry as like bowing down to this little like statue or something. But when we commit adultery, when we worship that which is not God as if it were God, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power a prestige, an authority over us, which we, under God, were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing, whatever it is. So awesome. fix our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. I feel like every time we read an N.T. Wright quote, it needs to be in like a British accent. <laughs> like My accent uh, 
in, uh, not impersonations, but or my, my accent impressions aren't very good. So, but yeah. This is it, so smart. It, just it sounds need, smarter too in the British accent. Needs to be dignified with a British accent. But is he British? Yeah. Or, yeah. He is. He's from, well, he's from the mother, he's from the motherland. Well, even, that's not, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, even better. Like I feel, yeah, we need to work on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I should practice my, my accent. Well, hey, Matt, do we have a preview of what we'll talk about next week? Or not next week, <laughs> next month. Next week. Man, it took me a whole month to get ready for this one. <laughs> November, <laughs> I think our episode will be about, uh, oh, it looks like movies. We're going to be talking oh. about redemptive themes in our favorite movies. So We just won't get paid $100 for each one that we watch. Right. Our favorite, <laughs> our favorite movies. So our homework, I guess, for the time being is to just watch a whole bunch of movies and think about them theologically. Yeah. So yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Um, don't hold us to it if we don't get to it, though, listeners. We we're yeah. uh, navigating this, but awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for joining us, Matt, and uh, listeners. Like, subscribe, share. Anything you do can help increase our listener base. And uh, yeah, we'll. Talk to you next time.